I'm Heather. And I'm Brooke. We're two mompreneurs and friends for almost 10 years who've watched each other go from single AF to married with child. Soon to be children. Tune in every Wednesday to hear us and our lovely guests dish about motherhood, entrepreneurship, relationships, and tips on how we try to balance it all. We're ready to let it all hang out. Yes, all of it. The pretty, the messy, the too tight for our skinny jeans. If only for a good therapeutic laugh or cry. Hashtag real talk. Welcome to a space for soul. We're excited to share ours with you. Hello, everyone. How are you doing? We are on again this lovely Wednesday. Um, And today we have Sarah Lyon with us, who is a doula, massage therapist, childbirth educator, mom, amazing woman who founded two businesses, Glow Birth and Body and The Birth Deck by Glow. Um, And we are here to talk about birth. So let's talk about birth, baby. You and me, we're going to do it. Um, So I want to get right into it and let Sarah um, introduce herself, share about her background a little bit, and um, tell us why she decided to become a doula. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me on today. I'm excited about this conversation. It's such a wild time for people birthing right now. Um, So I think it's just a great time to be sharing as much information as we all can about our birth experiences and empowering people around us. Um, And that's why I became a doula. I am a massage therapist. I specialize in prenatal and postpartum deep tissue massage therapy. Uh, And I'm also a childbirth educator and a doula. And I got into birth support through the massage therapy channel. So I was studying massage when I was in my early 20s, right out of college. And I had clients who were pregnant, loved it, went deeper into studying prenatal massage. And then clients started asking me as sort of a natural evolution from my massage practice to start going to birth with them. And it was, uh, you know, it's sort of a crazy drug, birth is, um, being around birth, especially as you get more and more comfortable with it. And I, I never looked back. I've been doing it since I was 21 years old. Wow. I love wow. it. You're like the trifecta. <laughs> like 21? <laughs> I know. I know. It's actually, like what an experience. Yeah. It's a little bit strange actually, because now, so I'm 37 now. And it's funny because a lot of people, our, people our age, like our collective sort of mid to late thirties, early forties, really feel like birth is having a moment right now. And it's interesting to be contemporary with everyone having babies right now. And yet to feel like I've kind of been in it long enough to see an arc um, within my lifetime of birth always having a moment. And that it's just that we've caught up to it. So now it's our moment. So we feel like this is a giant revelation that birth is a big deal. And that, you know, we feel like we've been deprived of information. And we feel like, you know, there's like someone out there to blame for why we don't have the information. And and really what I see a lot, um, what I really see is sort of the core of that dilemma for people is that, in fact, you just weren't interested in it. The information was out there. Why would you be reading, you know, anime's books when you're in your early 20s unless you're trying to be a birth worker? Um, otherwise, there, that is just not within your realm of interest. And so it's kind of funny to be like having been doing this for a while to be like, oh, okay, cool. 
welcome to the party, guys. This is exciting. Yeah. <laughs> We're all here now. <laughs> I, feel like I've been, I feel like I've been here the whole time, but welcome. <laughs> I love it. Um, can we go into a little bit more? So for those who have not experienced or maybe are thinking about using a doula or have heard secondhand, can you talk about kind of like the most common reasons clients will seek out a doula and choose to work with you during their birth experience? Absolutely. A doula is... Um, so a doula is a labor coach who actually goes to birth with the birthing person with the family. So a doula is not a midwife. She's not medically responsible. She has not studied the medical aspects of birth um, unless she's also on a simultaneous midwifery track um, or if she's in a on a nursing track, which can be independent of midwifery or a nurse midwife. So there are um, different ways to be involved in birth that are medical and non-medical. So non-medical would be being a doula. You're a labor coach. You go, you're like a cheerleader for childbirth. People seek out doulas because doulas have come to um, kind of fill the place of, of like a, I almost hesitate to say this, but I will, um, like a safety blanket, um, like something, mm. a comfort mechanism because doulas have unfortunately been forced into the position of having to protect what we call physiologic labor. labor. So that's vaginal birth, right? Physiologic birth um, uh, versus surgical birth, which would be a cesarean. And, um, and so if a doula is who you bring along with you for guidance, comfort, advocacy, a hands-on approach to pain relief, as well as a uh, verbal approach, so somebody who's going to be psychologically um, kind of shepherding you through this process, you then also have to understand that that means that you are not sure that you will get that from the medical providers. And um, I, I'm not saying that that is or is not okay, but it puts doulas in an interesting position as the labor coaches, because now they're also the advocates, and that can sometimes put them in an adversarial relationship with the medical team if they're witnessing that something is maybe um, being pressured, like their clients being pressured into an intervention or into a course of action that they might not see as evidence-based. Um, so that's a lot because the doula role originally wasn't so complex. You know, it's gotten layered with so much more than just um, providing physical and psychological emotional comfort um, and educating a couple about the process of birth. Yeah, I that's mean, that's definitely, it is, um, because, you know, you, I mean, I think for a lot of the people tuning in that either haven't become a mom yet or are, you know, going to birth their first child, may not know some of those nuances and kind of like, you know, birth plan versus things that can kind of, you know, be, like you said, guided in different ways or, um, you know, I think that it's interesting knowing what my birth experience was. Um, what could have potentially changed or hearing other people's experiences and having that doula to be that advocate for you um, can definitely be helpful. And also um, some people, I think, just think of the role really as like helping the mom cope, not really protecting her birth plan as much as, you know, medically safe um, to be able to allow a mom to, you know, maybe avoid a C-section if she really didn't want it or, um, you know, make sure they're not doing an episiotomy or so I, I know there's probably so many other different things. Um, to go back to the basics a little bit, um, we wanted to chat about the different types of births and you know, Brooke and I both have had two children and we're really curious. So we're pretty sure 
mamas who are pregnant are going to be um, are curious too, because we both had kids uh, vaginally with epidurals at hospitals, but there's, there's so many different things that we don't even know all the details about. So we'd love to just kind of talk about the different types of birth. Sure. So within, why don't we start with birth settings and then we can talk about actual physical experiences of birth, um, which obviously are, you know, many. Um, so the birth settings are relatively limited in that you have home, hospital, and birth center. And then we'll put like car birth, which is usually accidental, <laughs> sort of somewhere in the mix and can happen because you were not trying to go to the hospital when you were at home and didn't get home in time or because you were on your way to the hospital. But those are always fun births. Um, so, okay, so we have home, which is the rarity in America. Most people who are having a home birth have a philosophical desire to do that. Interestingly, and we can talk about this more if it's interesting to you guys, um, but the the COVID pandemic is inspiring a lot of people to look to other, you know, alternative birth settings um, from the hospital. And so we're seeing a huge surge in home birth and birth center interest to the point that home birth midwives who, you know, there aren't that many home birth midwives in America because it's not that popular of an option. And it's not, um, in some places, it's not supported by insurance. So we don't have that many home birth midwives and they're all full. Nobody has any more room for clients because so many people have turned to home birth, which I think is very interesting. So home birth happens at um, your home. Some people will rent a place closer to a medical institution like a hospital so that they have that option as a backup, which I'll talk more about in a moment. And in a home birth, you might set up your house to have sort of different spaces that feel a little different from one another. Um, for the labor. So just like if you, for you two who had births at the hospital, before you had your epidural, you were at home and then you eventually in some, some amount of your labor maybe happened at home, depending on whether or not you were induced or went into labor at home spontaneously. Then you got to the hospital and then maybe you walked around, maybe you got in the shower, maybe you were on the bed until it was time to get your epidural. And all of that, um, the, the motions that you're making, the changing of positions, uh, you know, interacting with different people is also changing the vibe, which actually stimulates different hormones in your body. So it sounds airy-fairy, but actually it's quite material. And that will change the course of your labor. So in your home, you might set up one room that's really dark. You might set up a room that's a little bit brighter. You might set up a room that has the birth ball and that's gonna be your active room. You might set up one room with the tub, um, et cetera. So you sort of have some different environments to kind of change up the way that your mind and body are responding to the hormones of labor and your setting. Um, you have a midwife at home with you, typically in a home birth. In some places in America, you'll have two midwives with you. In some places, you'll have one midwife and a medical assistant. Depends on the laws of that state. Um, there are licensed midwives, certified practicing midwives, and there are nurse midwives and certified nurse midwives, CNMs, and certified nurse midwives and some licensed midwives can practice in hospital. Um, certified nurse midwives can, and they can also do home birth. Um, some licensed midwives can practice in hospital and at home, but it's rare in the States. Um, okay, so home birth looks like laboring at home. You do not have an option for medical pain relief. There are some midwives in America who now are um, legally allowed and have access to nitrous um, gas. 
And that can be really, really helpful and powerful in labor for getting through intense contractions. So it's a spot fix. It doesn't impact the baby um, in any negative way. And it can help you um, help uh, sort of take the edge off of the pain of a contraction to get you through the, the more difficult ones towards um, deeper into labor. Um, home birth, if you need to transfer to hospital for any reason, you would either do it in your car if it's non-emergent, so it's not an emergency, or you would do it in an ambulance if it's an emergency. Midwives bring with them the core medical response equipment. So they have oxygen with them, sutures, which are, you know, stitches, um, all the materials for stitching. They have oxy, um, they have, sorry, pitocin with them, which is the synthetic version of our natural hormone oxytocin that inspires contractions. So if they need to control a hemorrhage, they have drugs for that and uh, a whole variety of other things. Um, and so they will bring that with them. And um, the vast majority of, of routine medical events that happen in a birth, which are very common, can be managed at home. Um, and then occasionally they will need to transfer. Most midwives have around a 15%, um, like a five, between a five and a 15% transfer rate and between like a one and a 10% C-section rate, um, which I realize is a big window, but there's not actually a lot of data that is collected widely on this. Um, and if there is, please point me in the right direction anyone out there listening. Okay, that's home birth. Do you guys have any questions about that before I go on to birth center birth? I do. Yeah, so um, for a home birth, like I've always thought to like a natural, like without medicine too, I mean, that obviously can happen in the hospital, but how long in advance do you like recommend someone preparing for this? Because it sounds like it's like for the hospital, I kind of just, I mean, I had my birth plan, but I just like showed up. Um, where I envision for something like this, you have to do a lot more planning. So if you're like maybe eight or nine months pregnant and you all of a sudden are like, I want to do an at-home birth, like where where is that kind of recommendation like time-wise for planning? So as far as planning, I mean, your, your, your body's going to do its thing. So luckily, as long as you can get your mind recruited, your body's going to, you know, people in comas push babies out. Like your body's going to do what it's going to do. You just got to figure out what to do with your brain while that's happening so that you don't totally trip out. So um, yeah. as, far as, preparing, <laughs> as far as preparing for a home birth, the main things are logistical, right? So we've got, you know, you, you need to have some kind of like sheet that you're going to probably put down on the bed or chucks pads, if you know what those are from the hospital. Um, mm -hmm. You like saw them there with the plastic on the bottom, the cushioning, like the absorbent um, layer on top, just because birth can be messy. It's not always, most of labor isn't, but it can be. So, you know, you might want some things to protect your furniture. Um, you might want to roll up some rugs if you have some nice rugs and you don't have plastic. You know, for most of us, if we're going to have a home birth, we'll get plastic like drape sheets to put down. Um, and then you'll, and they're cheap, they're really thin. You put them down and then you'll put a, a sheet over it, like an old used sheet, um, something that you're not worried about having to throw out later. Um, then you would want to get a birth tub if you don't have a nice big tub in your house. The difference between a bathtub, like a typical bathtub, I'm not talking about like a whirlpool in like a 700,000 square foot house. I'm talking about uh, most of our houses. 
you're going to want a birth tub because it's so much bigger and you can be on all fours. Your partner can be in there with you or your doula or your midwife. You can be leaning up against the edge. It's got like the nice cushy blown up edge. So you can lean against that. Um, and some birth tubs have more rigid edges, but you can put a yoga mat over it. So your arms are comfortable and you can really use that water for hours if you need to. Um, and that's really the main prep. Now, when you work with a midwife, a big part of a home birth midwife, a big part of the home birth midwife's um, education and the way that they kind of inculcate you to the birth process and to your, your coming motherhood and really your motherhood kind of starts at pregnancy is to empower you to understand and take responsibility for your birth as well. So you guys are collaborating on it. So you, most midwives will actually have you order your medical birth kit to your house so that you order it, you bring it home, you understand what's in it, you ordered it online and looked through so that you're working with her so you understand what goes into your birth so it's not such an opaque process that you're handing over to someone else and, um, and then wondering kind of what happened at the end of it. Does that make sense? Yes, totally, that makes sense. And, and I was kind of thinking that on the side, I was like, I feel like right, just because I've already gone the hospital route, I would be nervous to do at home, but it, you hit the nail on the head. It's more of like kind of, a, you don't know what you don't know. So working with like a midwife or a doula, you can kind of like understand what you're going into and what's like the optimal way to be set up to do so. Um, so like, you know, getting that education for the different environment you choose to birth at. Absolutely. And, and sorry, what were you gonna say, Brooke? No, you go ahead. I was just going to say that culturally, there's just so much that we have to acknowledge that goes into our most comfortable psychological place of birth, right? Like our most psychologically comfortable and familiar place of birth is going to be the place where our society has birthed most recently, which is in the hospital. So it makes perfect sense that most Americans are like, home birth's weird because we've been told that home birth's weird. Right, right. That makes sense. So it's funny. I was going to say, I'm actually feeling the opposite where, you know, I'm pretty sure we're done with kids, but if we did decide to go for a third, like hearing this a little bit more, I'm like, this is kind of interesting to me because I worried with my second that, you know, Sutton was going to come so much faster than Vaughn, which she did. She was like a third of the time I labored with Vaughn for 36 hours. I meditated at home for like 12 of them. Um, and then with her, she was start to finish 12 hours, like, and I have strep B, I test positive. So for me, I have a question too, of like at home, um, I almost feel like it would feel a little bit safer because I wouldn't be so stressed about, am I going to get to the hospital in time? Um, am I going to be able to, um, like deal with the strep B situation? Like, how do you guys deal with that at home? when people are testing positive? Because I know for me, like I have to get two rounds of antibiotics in me before I deliver vaginally. Um, is that something that if you test positive, you have to birth in the hospital? Like, how does that work? So group pre-strep is a really interesting um, point of contention in the birth field, um, especially in America. There are a lot of countries that do not test routinely for group pre-strep. And those countries have better birth outcomes than us. Um, and some of those countries do, most of them do actually. So um, group B strep is one of the many things that, that the American medical system has, um, has treated as something that is going to be routinely tested and treated for across the board. Now what's weird about group B strep and why it's controversial and not tested routinely in a lot of other places is because group B strep is migrating constantly. Sometimes it's 
there. Sometimes it's not. It's most often in a, a huge part of the population living in our colon that can then, and in our rectum, and that can then migrate to the, to the birth canal, to the vagina, and potentially infect a child, um, you know, a baby. Now, if that baby is infected and that infection flares and is not controlled, now keeping in mind that each one of these steps is just a smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller likelihood, like the worst case scenario right. is that child could die. So we have a, like a very quick conduit in our minds to like this equals this baby could die. So um, however legislation flowed, however, you know, what, what, whoever was writing the medical books at the time when GBS was really um, getting a lot of attention decided in America we're routinely testing. Okay, cool. So now we routinely test, but what's weird as I just explained about the migration is that you might test positive on one swab and test negative on a swab the next day or even later that day. Mm. You might be group B strep positive one year and not the next year. You might always be group B strep positive. You don't know, but to test ahead of the actual labor is sort of silly anyways. It just means it's somewhere in your system and it may be in your birth canal, but that's true for tons of people, you know? Um, right or a good percentage of the population. So it's, it's really controversial because then what you're doing is if in America we then say, okay, prophylactically we're gonna treat with antibiotics to um, control for this, you know, to try to prevent this very small likelihood that this is something that's catastrophic. Um, and a lot of birth and medical practice in America is centered around that. So reducing the possibility for litigation and for like any kind of damage, um, but at the cost of maybe other kinds of damage, right? So now we're giving like many rounds of antibiotics um, to some babies and to some mommies ahead of this birth that may or may not actually be impacted by group B strep. So your question originally is what, how does that get managed in a home birth? Some people will decide if they are GBS positive that they will take the antibiotics at home. So you can actually get the prescription and you can take the antibiotics orally. Um, mm. Alternatively, you can decide to transfer to hospital and have your birth at the hospital. Um, so when your labor, when you go into labor, you'll go to the hospital or when your water breaks, you'll go into the hospital earlier than you would um, normally just like you had to, um, to get your prophylactic antibiotics um, to make sure that your system and that your baby system is essentially like free of this, of, of GBS, of groupie strep. Now, if you're at home, there are different things that your midwife is going to be recommending throughout your pregnancy, starting the minute that you tell her you're pregnant, she and that you will, you know, want her on your team. She's going to be telling you to be taking a ton of probiotics. She's probably going to put you on some garlic pills. She might even at the time if she does a pro if she does sort of like an early groupy strep test just to see where your flora, you know, your vaginal flora is at. She might have mm -hmm. you um, doing like probiotic inserts, vaginal inserts, or maybe even garlic inserts. Um, and she would teach you how to do that so that it's perfectly safe. And she would basically be trying to help you make sure that your birth canal is as clean as possible. Now, in the case that you are still testing positive for a group B strep and you decide to still have a baby at home, she might use something called HibaCleanse, which is this wash that um, essentially like disinfects the birth canal. Now, the downside of using HibaCleanse is that it also, same as antibiotics, also reduces the positive microflora in your body because it kind of will wipe out everything, not just right. bad bugs. So, um, and we now know um, that, or we now uh, have enough evidence that we can believe that um, 
that the microflora of the birth canal is quite important for seeding the baby's entire immune system for the rest of their lives and, and the microflora of their eyes and their mouths and even for little girls, their vaginas. Um, so yeah, does that answer that question? It does, yeah, because I mean, I remember with my first, I was like terrified. I literally asked my doctor, should I just get a C-section? Because the way it was described was so scary. Um, and then obviously it was much more comfortable when I tested positive the second time with Sutton because I had already dealt with it with Vaughn and everything was fine. But I was still like concerned of like, okay, you know, it made it, I still was so worried about the antibiotics. So it's actually helpful. Um, and especially if other moms, you know, are pregnant and having and testing and this to just give a little bit more background on it because it kind of demystifies it a little bit. And, um, you know, I like hearing about the potential supplements and things like that too. So that was really um, helpful just to kind of know for a personal level. Again, not like I'm probably having kids, but good to know. <laughs> but you know what? It's also, even if you're not having more children, what, what I have come to learn through doing this work for a little while now is that understanding the birth that you had is as important as having the birth that you're having. So it's not just about the present experience or like planning for a future birth. Our psychological satisfaction, our emotional satisfaction with our birth process is something that we can always be working on, right? Because you're living through a memory. And if you can understand more about what happened and reduce the, the fear um, in your memory, like, oh, now I understand that maybe I didn't need to be that scared. That wasn't that scary. My body actually wasn't putting me in that dangerous of a position as I thought at that time, you can transform that memory for you. And that does change the way that you're living your life today. Does that make sense? Definitely. Yeah, it does. Okay. Um, awesome. So do we want to move on to the next birth option? The Yes. Um, okay, cool. Thanks birthing for center. Okay, so a birth center. So a birth center is sort of this happy medium. So we have home and then we have a birth center. Now there are two different kinds of birth centers. You can do in-hospital birth center or out-of-hospital birth center. An out-of-hospital birth center can also be called a freestanding birth center. And that is where you can go and it's essentially going to someone else's house to have a home birth. They will have exactly the same equipment, no more, no less than you had at home. So that's a simple one to describe. Why would people pick that? Why wouldn't they just have a baby at home? I think for a lot of people, there's psychological comfort because again, we in our society go somewhere else to have the babies. Like the babies aren't born at home. Only hippies have babies at home are people who have fast births, you know, um, like too fast to get to the hospital. As a society, we feel that way. So going somewhere else where the medical staff, AKA the midwives work feels more psychologically secure, even if in fact it is not materially different. Um, so that is a birth center and people are picking that during COVID because there is just not as trafficked and obviously at a birth center, they are not treating COVID patients within the center for COVID. Um, so that then when you go to, oh, and the other reason that people are picking home birth and, um, birth center birth right now is because some of them will allow you to bring a doula. Whereas hospitals right now, a lot of hospitals won't, although some are starting to relax that rule. Um, then you have in-hospital birth center. An in-hospital birth center can best be described as a, um, a sort of specific wing, a specific ward in the hospital with a different name that has slightly different rules. So there's labor and delivery, and then there might be a birth center uh, in the hospital. And I had a midwife, a nurse midwife at a 
hospital for a center once say to me, it's like a one-way swinging door. So the doctors don't come into the birth center. An OB might come in just to check on somebody and then help make the final decision to take the patient to labor and delivery out of the birth center. But as long as your birth is flowing, the midwives can go over and visit people in labor and delivery ward, but the OBs aren't coming over to do work in in the birth center. That is the midwife's domain. A midwife is is educated in and schooled, um, is experienced in normal physiologic birth. They are not surgeons. So the minute that something shifts and it looks like we're going to need a kind of intervention that is not that is a medical intervention, so not just a normal natural physiologic vaginal birth, you will get transferred to the labor and delivery ward. Birth centers have higher, both, both freestanding birth centers and hospital birth centers have higher rates of hospital, of, of transfers of C-sections um, than home birth does, partially because people who might risk out of a home birth might be allowed to birth in a birth center um, at a hospital because there's an OR and a NICU close, depending on what's happening with their pregnancy. Um, and a hospital birth is you know, what we're all used to. So a hospital birth, you can have um, pain medication, you can, um, some of them will have tubs for you, some of them will have birth balls and mats you can use on the ground as well, depending on what hospital you're at. Um, you may or may not have a shower available to you as well as a tub um, that is your, in your private room, depending on your hospital again. And um, you will have a nurse um, probably who is assigned to your room and you'll, there'll be a doctor, an OB who is attending, so who's monitoring the ward, um, but you won't have somebody who's there like a, you won't have a doctor who is there monitoring you the whole time, um, but you will probably be monitored by a few different machines that'll be attached to you, usually, not always, so that they can monitor you from the nurse's station as well, so they don't have to be in the room with you. So um, yeah, that is, those are the differences. And you have a NICU close in a hospital. A lot of people um, feel really comfortable, extra comfortable with that in neonative intensive care unit. And you have an operating room right you know, down the hall as well in case um, there you're, you need a C-section. And those are the options for birth in America. That is so helpful. I think, like I said before, half the battle is kind of knowing what the options are. Um, like I don't, I mean, I've had two kids and I never even really explored all my options. I just kind of like, followed what I was supposed to do, air quotes, <laughs> you know, and just like what my mom did or what my sister was doing. And um, I think it's super helpful to at least know and then making your choice um, based on everything that's available to you, like education wise. So I think that's very helpful for people who are trying to figure out what to do and um, don't have like, the. I know the information's out there, but to like to start, you know, where do you look? So I think that's even helpful just knowing what the, the differences are. Um, so that being said, we would love to hear a little bit more about if you're comfortable sharing about kind of your birth plans and your birth experience. We all here love a good birth story and um, it helps us to learn more about, you know, different, the different nuances. So I think it would be really awesome if you would like to share um, kind of your birth stories with your kids. I am happy to do that. And it's funny that you said the, you know, if you're comfortable part because I actually usually don't share my birth stories. I never share my birth stories when I'm teaching birth education. Um, I present, I think, as being 
quite mainstream. Granted, I'm involved in birth and whatnot, but I sort of like, I wear a lot of gap clothing. <laughs> like I look quite preppy and I come <laughs> from like a background that's like very normal. Like my mom, you know, did not consider a home birth or anything like that. But I got into right. birth work so young in my young adulthood that I very quickly started to be comfortable with the idea of home birth. And so, and not just comfortable with the idea of home birth, but I started to really understand that in fact, according to evidence, international evidence, the safest place to give home is to give birth if you are not at risk of something that needs to be monitored and managed by a hospital staff um, is at home. And psychologically, I was able to be comfortable with that because I've been thinking about it for so long. and, and really researching it for clients way before I ever thought about having kids. I was not somebody who, you know, I'm still not like obsessed with babies and children. Like once you have your baby, I kind of like refer you out <laughs> to somebody else. And, but I take care of mom, like I'm all about mom. So um, by the time I had kids, I was 30 and I'd already been sort of in this world and doing this work for 10 years. And I planned a home birth and, Um, with my first, and we were in the Bay Area in California, and it was a 24-hour labor um, from, and I remember the contractions coming on, like starting, and I sort of had contractions at night for a couple nights leading up to it, and I wondered if labor was going to start, but your oxytocin, which is the hormone that triggers contractions, naturally for every single human rises at night, and then sort of subdues in the morning, it goes away in the morning. And so you, you're, it's very normal for women to start having contractions at night, you know, for multiple nights in a row before they have enough oxytocin to really push them into labor. And then most women will actually go into labor in the evening or in the middle of the night. Um, So I started that process. I knew what was going on. And for me going into labor, it was like, I was totally observing. I was so excited to finally be doing this thing that I had thought about so many times. And it wasn't even just that I was excited. I was just fascinated. And I had um, two midwives who are just amazing. Um, And I had, so Ellen Lovett and um, Leo B. Sanderson Edmonds, who is no longer doing seeing birth clients, but she's incredible up in the Bay. And my doula, who's now been a midwife forever, um, Hannah Weiss of Womb Midwifery in Oakland, California. And so the three of them were there. And then this is kind of weird. My parents were both there, <laughs> including my dad. Oh, and I need... Your dad is so cute. Oh my gosh, I love it. Oh my God. No, you guys, it gets even weirder. Okay. So here's the thing. My dad, you need to understand, he's like a tech CEO. My dad is not a hippie. Okay. I guess now tech CEOs all go to Burning Man and shit, but like, no, that is not what we're talking about. I'm talking about like a 75 year old tech CEO. Okay. So my dad (laughs) is, my dad's also a photographer. That's like his sort of side hustle. And so he also photographed the whole thing, which I recognize for a lot of people is like the weirdest thing ever but it really wasn't. And as he put it, he's like, I got the longest lens possible. So I literally could be in another room (laughs) and shoot the whole thing. (laughs) And um, so I like really pressured him into it. And now obviously he's like, that was like the greatest thing ever. And he's done it for both of my kids. But um, so both of my parents were there. Um, My mom will never listen to this. So I can say, I think she was on like so much Xanax. It was hilarious. Like she talked the (laughs) whole time incessantly. It was just so funny. So, um, 
so then, um, and then my ex-husband was there. So I had my first with, um, in a different marriage and then what happened? So 24 hours of labor, man, it was like real labor and it was properly long. It was, but I felt like it was everything my body needed. And then like, I needed all that time to open and I needed that time to come to terms with becoming a mom. Like that I hit a wall at like eight and a half centimeters. I just hit this wall where I was like, what am I doing? This is a terrible idea. I'm not going to be able to run a business and have be a mom. Like I don't even, I was answering client phone calls in between contractions. It was, you know, you guys know, I just hit a moment where I was like, this is, this is, what am I doing in my life? And it took me. I love like, you said it was at like eight and a half centimeters too, where it's like, there's, oh. there's no going back now. <laughs> like, oh my God. You're like minutes potentially away from birthing your child. And you're like, um, I don't know what I'm doing guys. <laughs> like, so can we, can we show, turn back? Yeah. It goes to show every, every mom can feel those things. And you do at some point, even the ones that are so trained around birth, you're like, wait, what the fuck's happening? <laughs> I love I mean, it. I the, love the honesty in this because it's so real. Most of our affirmation birth cards in the birth deck are are basically saying like, you're good, you can do this. And, you know, and our little explanations on the back of the card, which are written for the partner or the doula who's going to be using this card, we say, you know, every woman is going to hit a crisis of confidence. All of us have a moment. And it was funny because I was so embarrassed to admit what was happening to me, even though I knew and everyone, you know, we like put the breast pump on for nipple stimulation to get contract. I mean, I stalled for two hours, you guys. And I, I was like, oh, am I going to have to transfer to the hospital? Like, I just don't want that. So I, and I knew what was going on and I didn't even want to speak the words that like I had basically we just like stopped my labor because I decided being a mom was a bad idea and so mm-hmm. I go into the bathroom with my ex and we like have a moment you know what I mean I have a moment where I'm just like this is what I want I want this I don't care if I shut this business down and it's just me and this man and our baby in this bed for the rest of my living days I'm good this is what I want and I really had to get there to fully clear that hurdle And I could see that, whether that was at eight and a half centimeters or at two centimeters being, and I've seen it with my clients being the moment where sometimes people opt for Pitocin because they're like, my contraction stalled out and didn't start again. And I know as a doula that there is something psychological, like there's something deeper going on there that's like a mental, emotional uh, hurdle that hasn't been processed and worked through. Um, And at the time where like a really great doula might be able to like stop, put the couple together and be like, you know, if it's like a couple... Um, if the birthing person has a partner and be like, you guys need to like have a moment together or like we'll get in her face Mm -hmm. and be like, and like coach her through and over that hurdle, you know? Um, But Pitocin also can like come back in and give you that oxytocin. And I mean, obviously I could go way deep into like the endocrinology of why a mental hurdle will stop labor, um, which I won't do right now, (laughs) but. um, No, but I I I, resonate with this because when I was pushing, like, I literally was at 10, they called the doctor in there, like, let's do a practice push. And they're like, stop, stop, stop. Like, he's, you're good. And then the doctor came in and it was like, it made it real. Like, oh, fuck, I'm birthing a kid. And my contractions went away. Like, they, they literally stopped. And the doctor's like, where are her contractions? Like, you don't, you're, and he literally looked at me, he's like, hold on, you're not having them right now. And I was like, what? But like, I like kind of freaked for a minute when he came in. And I, it like, it finally had hit me like, holy shit, I'm having a baby. 
And I had to kind of like mentally regroup, just like, I just started breathing. I didn't know it was really happening, but you saying this, I'm like, oh my God, that, that was what would happen with Vaughn. Cause it was like the weirdest thing. They went away for like five minutes and then like, I kind of oh, wow. got calm and they came back. So this is like, wow, that's, that makes so much sense now because I was terrified. Adrenaline stops contractions. I actually just wrote an article about this for motherly that about pain and labor and about labor generally and the fact that fear is an indication to your body that it is not safe to release a vulnerable little person into the wilderness, right? Like fear mm -hmm. means that there is a threat. And so you retain the baby in order to move to a safer location or whatever to wait for the threat to pass before you will do that. So now we don't really have like bears in the you know, bushes. Instead, we have fear of transitioning into the next life stage. We have fear of like the costs associated with that. We have fear of pain itself. You know, we don't birth in community. So we're not used to seeing other people that in that kind of pain. And then also knowing that they survive it and thrive. And the minute the pain goes away, like contractions are done, contractions are done. You know, um, we don't, mm -hmm. we, we, so there are all these other little things that we fear now um, that were not necessarily always part of the birth journey. Um, although some, somewhere, you know, I think that there probably were some core like identity shifting moments that have been forever, you know, um, as humans who have egos and brains as we all always have. So it's, yeah, anyways, birth, crazy. So I am, um, <laughs> I, mm -hmm. I stalled out two hours and had my breakthrough um, crying and, you know, got through it, had my catharsis. And then we did the thing. Um, I pushed for three and a half hours in a whole bunch of positions. I'm a fainter. And so my um, midwife had brought extra oxygen and I only needed a tiny little bit at that point. But the reality is I look back now, everyone gets lightheaded when they push. It's actually part of the, the hormone symphony that happens. You do get a little burst of adrenaline that is necessary in order to have energy to push the baby out, um, especially because after a long labor, you're tired, right? Um, and so your body gives you a little bit of positive adrenaline. Um, it, it gets you powered through, but it also makes you lightheaded. Um, and so you see a lot of women using oxygen while they're pushing um, for that reason. So I had a little bit of extra oxygen at that time, no big deal, um, and pushed the baby out. Um, and I actually, as I was pushing, I mean, there's so many aspects of this, but I just remember thinking like, like this is, first of all, it felt like I was just tripping on something crazy. And I, <laughs> you know, in, um, in train spotting where he like, shoots up with heroin and then he like lays back on the carpet and falls through the floor. I was laying on my, <laughs> the carpet in my family room and like in between pushes, that was what it felt like. And I remember looking mm -hmm. around, I was, I was yelling so loudly. Like I was swearing, like I was a drunk sailor. And I remember thinking, I wonder if the eight year old boy in the house next door can hear me. And like thinking about Kirby and being like, am I defiling Kirby right now? Like his ears with my dirty birth mouth. And then I <laughs> remember thinking at one point, like, are all the walls going to fall down? Like, are, am I, is my volume going to make all the walls of the house fall down? Like stuff like you only think about when you're like off your face. So that happens. And then I pushed her out and I caught, I kind of like, grabbed her and I did something really dumb. I pulled her 
And even though my midwife was like, don't do that. I just was in my moment. I pulled her up and out and that was when I tore. Yay. Um, No, fun times. times. But you know, we we both have, so it's the worst. Yeah. Yeah. It's the worst. But then, but you know what? It's like, it's the worst, but like, I really enjoy having sex. So we worked it out. We clearly worked through it. You know what I mean? Like your body also is built to tear there. That is your body's like built to stretch, tear, and then repair over and over again to have babies every two years. That's what we're supposed to do um, as homo sapiens. So um, that's what happened. And that was my first birth. My second birth was an abbreviated story because it was only four hours long. Um, Oh my goodness. I know it was crazy. I actually slowed that labor down. I don't know what I was thinking, but my husband taught me. So I then remarried. That's a whole other story, but I remarried. So this is four years later. Um, now in New York City, having a home birth in an apartment in New York City, my parents are in town again. They're with our older child. Um, and I go, my husband convinces me to go see Dunkirk, this movie about the battle of Normandy. Um, I think that's what it's about. Oh my God, I'm so ignorant. And we were, this movie is so, so intense, like so intense. Also to my credit, I was in labor this whole time. So like, I forgive me if I don't remember the details, but talk about like the worst thing for labor. It's, I had so much adrenaline. And so I had to actually excuse myself and go to the bathroom and just like be by myself. We leave and I get home and I just get myself in bed and I'm like, okay, this is happening. I contemplate having a pizza party with the cousins who were supposed to come over. I tell my midwife that they can all come over, that the cousins can come over with their little kids and have a pizza party in the family room and I'll just leave her in the bedroom. And my husband is like, no, that is not happening. You're out of your mind. So we take our daughter over. He takes our daughter over to their, to the cousin's house and I go into labor and I'm thinking to myself, so he leaves me alone in the apartment for like 20 minutes to take him down the block. And I, send him this long text message just with instructions, like how to blow up the tub, the things that I want him to do before he gets back. And I say, because by the time you get back here, I'm going to be in labor land and I don't want to have to think about anything tangible. Like I just want to be in my flow. And then I stayed laying down for a really long time because what I'd learned from the first birth, from Anya's labor, my oldest, was that if I, if you get up and you walk around and expend a ton of energy, it's actually really not that efficient. So I chose instead this time to let my body soften and open internally while I was laying on my side and to just go really, really deep into breathwork and meditation and let that happen instead of becoming so active in an effort to avoid the pain and manage the pain. I kind of was like, okay, now I know what I'm dealing with. Like I know where where this pain is going to go and what it's going to be. And I'm just going to go right into it and get through it instead of just trying to like basically run away from it, which is what a lot of us do um, in labor is we just try to run away from it. And that's not always that productive. So um, this labor, I stayed laying down because I also knew that if I were to just stand up, I could feel that the pressure of the baby's head on my cervix, I was going to have a labor that might be too fast at that moment because I was opening so quickly. I could like just tell because I, I was so, you get this like cocktail of brain drugs. I was so deep in my little like labor land that I knew things were moving fast. And I was like, if I stand up, I'm not going to be deep enough into this, like my, 
my natural painkillers, my endorphins, all of that are not going to be high enough at the time when I push the baby out that I'm going to have enough like pain relief for pushing the baby out. And so I stayed laying down trying to kind of hold off on the pressure down for another hour and a half. And then I got in the tub and my midwife, um, had left the minute that we called her, left her place in Brooklyn and came over and she just waited in her car for a while and then came and like sat on the couch while I labored in the tub. And at one point I called her over and I was like, I think I want you to check me. And she was like, okay, let's just get through this contraction. And that contraction I started pushing and I probably pushed for like, I pushed for like two contractions and my, my contractions spaced out a lot. And so um, at the end, and so I was having like three to five minute breaks in between my contractions. So it was probably two contractions and I pushed them out. And this was actually, for me, this was the most, um, this was so different. My first labor, I talked through the whole thing and I described everything to my friend who was a doula, who was also my colleague. Um, she and I worked together and I just explained everything to her because she also hadn't had a baby. And this time I didn't verbally process anything. I was silent the whole time. And um, I got really, really like, not even just scared at the end. I just felt so sorry for myself, like so much self-pity. I was just like, oh, fuck, I have to push this baby out right now. Like, fuck, this sucks. Like, I'm going to tear. I don't, I just was like, I don't feel like tearing right now. I'm just so like not in the mood. And I, and I just put my head against the edge of the tub. I was like facing the tub and like kind of squatting. And I put my head against the edge of the tub and just was like crying to myself, like these warm, wet tears coming down my cheeks and my face like pathetically pressed against the plastic. And I was just like, oh, this sucks, man. And, and my midwife comes over and I'm like, I'm so afraid of tearing. And she goes, Sarah, you are not going to tear you were going to put your hand down and you are going to catch your baby's head in your hand and you are going to make sure you do not tear. And I was just like, whatever oh. you say, Cher. So my amazing midwives in New York are Cher Laporte and Carol Buse. And I was like, okay, girl, whatever you say. Um, and my parents come like running through the door, like right then because the labor was so short, right? They've been like at dinner with friends. My dad like barely has his camera out. My mom goes and hangs out with our daughter who to like at that point come back from the pizza party because she was kind of weirded out by the whole situation, which is fair. And I push, and it was so amazing because by putting my hand down at my, at my vagina, at the, you know, outlet for the baby, I could feel my skin stretch and I could feel him come out and ma him making his motions that the baby always makes with their head as they come through. And I could press back on him to let myself stretch. So I actually knew what was going on with my skin and I didn't tear at all. I didn't even bruise. Um, it was amazing. And wow. he came out and that, that was it. Like I could have, I could have ridden a bike the next day. It was nuts. Wow. Oh my gosh. I was so pumped. So that was his birth. Four hours. Four oh hours. Gosh. Yeah. I can't even wrap That's my head amazing. around that. That's like so crazy, but yeah, incredible. Um, and so such different birth. I mean, sometimes, you know, I feel like mine were similar, just like timeframes were a little different and, you know, but for the most part, it was, it was pretty, pretty similar. Um, but yours were so different. Um, but, and just even the time frame. but it goes to show like the second really does come so much faster. Your body knows what to do. You know what to do a little bit more in certain situations. And, um, I love that you shared that with us. Thank you. Cause I know you said that wasn't something that you normally share. 
No, I feel honored. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yeah, I never like to put my story on people, especially because the vast majority of my clients are having hospital births. And I really strongly believe that hospital, that, that, the safest place for you to give birth is the place where you feel safest. And the fact is that the majority of us in America feel safest at the hospital. That's where your adrenaline will be lowest because that's mm -hmm. your comfort space for birth. So I never want my comfort with home birth personally um, and that choice to make somebody feel like I would be like judging them or not think that their decision is wise because that is so not the case. Totally. Yeah, no, I love that. that. And that makes sense. Exactly. Um, so I want to switch topics a little bit just to wrap us up because um, I know this is something that you're passionate about and it's something that's so relevant um, just overall. Uh, Brooke and I are both, you know, under year of having our daughters um, and trying to get back into, you know, our pre-baby bodies and just feeling healthy again. Um, and I know you have a lot of thoughts around the mom bod and kind of the softest, sexy movement. Um, can you share just a little bit about that? And um, mostly because, I didn't really think about it until after we chatted. Like I've always been like, yeah, you know, like I may not go back to those jeans. I may not have abs again. I'm, I'm flubbery. It's okay. Like I've made, a, I, I pee my pants when I laugh. It's fine. Like it's all good. I had two babies and, um, you know, I've, I've known the pee my pants part, um, isn't right. Cause I shouldn't have the same problems <laughs> as my toddler, um, but the other stuff, um, you know, like, like not getting my core back has really actually affected my back. And I just started thinking of a lot of things as we talked. So I want you to share, um, your thoughts on this, cause I think it might help, um, just open up that conversation a little bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm really not into this, um, this acceptance of, of inadequate healthcare and inadequate self-care as a, um, like masquerading as a celebration of a new kind of femininity. I'm not into it. I don't think that it even has to do with what your body looks like. Um, although it can be, I think it more at its, at its core, it has to do with health and safety and that mm -hmm. your body is not going to be healthy and safe until you are in your strong self foundationally. And that has to do with your pelvis. Your pelvis is a foundation for your body. It's, you know, your tailbone is the arch stone on which the whole rest of your body pivots. And if you're not supported in your pelvis, and in your core, then it leads to health ramifications all the way down the line where we can look down, you know, into 60s, 70s, 80s, where people, women are breaking their hips because they lose their balance or because the, their bone structure is not strong enough because they weren't taught to eat right or to exercise right um, and to get what their bones need and to get uh, what, they, what they need um, as far as support to even exercise, you know, throughout their time mothering um, because they didn't get enough you know, childcare from their partners or their communities. Um, and I think that these things need to be addressed because it's okay to want to feel strong and good um, and to demand that. And also it's okay to want to fit into your mom jeans, like, or your pre-mom jeans, you know, it's okay to want to feel, um, to feel attractive and sexy and to feel like yourself. And, and of course, it's not your pre-baby self. Do, do any of us ever in any way um, that we look at our current identities, do we feel like our old selves? No, of course not. We now have oh, so no. many, 
no, not even close. And some of that's good and some of that's challenging. But in the end, it's not about getting back to anything, but it's about becoming strong Mm -hmm. in what your new reality is. And I know a lot of women who can actually get stronger. You know, there are people who, there are a lot of, like, my body is completely changed. My body doesn't look anything like before I had babies, but I'm stronger in a lot of ways. Well, and I, I resonate with this so much because, and people can totally send me hate DMs if they want to, but like, I actually am from a number perspective and like a dean size thinner than when I, before I had kids, like I'm actually heavier in my wedding photos and breastfeeding has just actually been a blessing in disguise for me. So I'm actually on that side of like, yeah, I actually like, I'm thin quote unquote, but I don't feel healthy at all. And I don't like it. Like I actually got back in my mom jeans, but I'm literally like, I have bladder issues. Like my back is totally jacked and there's like, like, I, I just don't feel right. Like I don't feel nourished. I'm exhausted. Like there's so many things and it ties back to what you're saying of like, it's not about the size. It's not about like getting back into your jeans or, you know, maybe you do feel, feel better, you know, from like a size perspective than pre-baby. But like at the end of the day, if you're not feeling healthy and strong, like it's, it's not a good place to be. And I think that's where like, um, you just really got me because it made me realize like from the outside, everyone's like, Oh my gosh, but you look so great post-pregnancy. Like everything's amazing for you. And I'm like, I literally run, jump or laugh with my child and I need to change my pants. Like, no, everything's not okay with me. And like, you know, my back's falling off. And, um, even just hearing you kind of talk about it, I'm like, Oh my gosh, like I thought my back was falling off because my kids are heavy, but it could actually also be falling off because I don't have a core anymore. And like, maybe my pelvic floor is so messed up that like, you know, things have just shifted so much that I'm causing like bigger problems in my body because I'm not addressing this postpartum. And that goes into, which we don't have time for, but a huger conversation around postpartum care. And with the second pregnancy, I've gotten so angry. Like there's just definitely other things that I'm not going to go into over here, but that are happening that I know like my body's not right. So it's also too like that, you know, you see one thing on the outside, but there's a lot of different things going on on the inside that I think um, if we had better postpartum care and weren't leaning into this so much of like, it's just fine, like you pee your pants, wear a pad, um, you know, we would like the Band-Aid approach, we'd actually have moms in a better place postpartum. So, you know, I just love that you're sharing on that. I know a lot of people aren't and it's going against the grain, but I think it's such a big message because it, it'll make mom thinks about like, are they, are they truly healthy and what they, you know, might need to, to focus on to be healthy from the inside out, which is, you know, the best way to feel. Yeah, I, I totally, all of that resonates with me. Um, and I think that pelvic floor physical therapy should be a routine part of postpartum medical care for every single person like mm-hmm. it is in other countries, in some other countries. And I, I think that we have to demand it and that it's, it's not about, um, you know, like you said, it's not about an aesthetic. It's about true health. Um, and, and also if like you look freaking great, also because of it, then great. But you know, it's funny, just really quick. And um, I know we're running out of time, but um, I moved to New York City and I kind of stopped working out for a while because I was like, oh, this is weird. Like I'm running around all day up and down the subway steps and I'm walking like five miles a day, whatever. But I started injuring myself, like lifting small boxes to put them up in the storage. You know, things I was like, wow, I, my lower back started hurting because I wasn't actually using my muscles in the way that 
my body needs me to for me to be healthy and strong. And so that was a great example of like my genes fit just the same, you know, I just was hurting myself doing stupid little things. Um, so you have to take mm -hmm. all of these things, these aches and pains that your body is, is showing you are not just like little, like things to be laughed off. They're not little novelties about like, like, you know, the bad little funny parts about being a mom and being postpartum. Like those are actual indications that there is something wrong and we need to address it. Definitely, yeah, 100%. Super important. And I think that would be actually a great, another episode to have you come back on because there's so much, I'm like holding myself back over here. Like I want to chime in and chat so much about this. <laughs> there's so much around this that is affecting all of us. And I, yeah, we can go down that whole route. But we would love to give information to people to be able to connect with you and find you. And um, this was such a great topic for us to kind of dabble in but i know that people are going to have so many more questions so where can they find you you guys can find me at glow birth and body on instagram or at the birth deck where we focus a lot on birth preparation and comfort techniques and our websites glowbirthandbody.com and thebirthdeck.com Perfect. Well, thank Perfect. you so much, Sarah. This was just an amazing, um, you know, hour spent with you. And I think very eye-opening, even though we've gone through the process ourselves, there's still things that we're learning um, from different ways um, of doing things. And I think it was super helpful for us and will be for those in our community listening. I'm so glad, you guys. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure chatting with both of you. Oh, of course, Sarah. And for everyone else. Go ahead, Heather. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say, same brain. I was going to say, thanks for tuning in, people. We hope you loved it. And have a feeling we will have Sarah back for part two, digging into postpartum, because I feel like there's so much we can talk about there. But um, for another time. Thank you for joining A Space for Soul. If you like what you heard, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. We'll, we'll love you forever. forever. For more information on today's topics, the notes from this episode can be found on our website, soulspace.co forward slash podcast. That's soulspace, S-O-L-S-P-A-C-E dot co forward slash podcast. You can also find us on Instagram at soulspace.co. Catch us next week at the same place, same time. And as always, feel free to tell a friend. Toodles! Toodles.